Hi, everybody. Welcome to Guess What? The 50th edition of the PR Masters podcast series. Can you believe it? We've been doing this with 50 wonderful legends in the world of public relations, including our special guest today. I'm Art Stevens, and I'm your host. And I'm also managing partner of the Stevens Group, which is a leading facilitator of mergers and acquisitions in the PR and digital interactive space. As you all know by now, the PR Masters podcast honors living legends in our profession, individuals who have made a mark in the world of public relations. And we certainly have a very special guest today, and I'm so pleased to introduce him. He is somebody that I've looked up to for so many years in the, in the field of public relations and who has certainly left a mark in the world of public relations, and he is Bill Nielsen. Bill was corporate vice president of Johnson & Johnson in December 2004 after serving 17 years. He retired in December 2004 after serving 17 years with the company where he was the chief public relations and corporate communications officer. And he is only the second corporate public relations uh, chief and global chief of uh, Johnson & Johnson Public Relations, uh, having followed... Larry Forster, who served in that capacity for more than 30 years. So Bill is really only the second top corporate communications uh, executive at Johnson & Johnson, and he has done an outstanding job, as the industry well knows. He joined J&J &J in 1988, following 18 years as a public relations agency consultant with Carl Beyer. Remember that name? Carl Beyer & Associates and Hillen Olton. And in addition to executive roles in agency management, he specialized in corporate communications and crisis management in such industries as consumer finance, insurance, defense, biotech, and airlines. Bill has a long list of credentials in addition to Johnson & Johnson. He was elected to the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Board in January 2011. He serves as a chairman of the Board of Advisors to the Arthur W. Page Center for Integrity in Public Communications at Penn State University. He served as two terms as president of the Arthur W. Page Society, and he was inducted into that organization's Hall of Fame in September 2003. And he served on its board of trustees for 17 years and to this day continues as chair of the Society's Honors Committee. Uh, in addition to his consulting work, he's a frequent lecturer. Uh, he's taught at colleges and universities across the country. He was inducted into the PR Week Hall of Fame in December 2014, and he was honored by the Planck Center with its milestones in Mentoring Legacy Award in 2017. So it is my, my distinct pleasure to welcome Bill Nielsen. Bill, how are you today? I'm good, Art. Thank you very much uh, for that very kind uh, introduction. I would just say um, uh, 2000, the end of 2004 is the beginning of my retirement, but it's hard to say that I've retired. <laughs> I don't think any of us communications ever fully retire. Um, I would say that's the point when I started taking the pension from the company. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I don't know, if, just to, on that topic, I, I think that anyone uh, with a long communications background would have a very hard time tiring, retiring. I certainly hear that from a lot of friends who've been in uh, this practice for a long time because um, wherever you go, wherever you live, um, and you run into people and organizations and they get an idea of where you've been, all of a sudden they have all kinds of 
questions and you know, are looking for a direction in communication. So it's a, it's a kind of skill set that uh, lives with you forever. Well, Bill, isn't it true that the more you've done in your career, the more people want you to do following a retirement? Yes, it is. And you, you're certainly, you're certainly on that list. You, you continue to remain active, and and uh, you are as prominent now as you have ever been, in my <laughs> humble opinion. <laughs> so, Bill, you're you're considered a legend in the public relations industry, and I, I do not overstate that. And. Uh, you you come you follow obviously another legend Larry Foster with whom you obviously had a long working relationship and somebody you have known well. Um, your contribution to corporate communications will always be part of your legacy. Tell me how how did how did your career take you to one of the top rungs on the corporate ladder? Well, as you explained, um, I started well, actually I started my career in the Air Force. I was a base information officer. Um, and um, when I was in the Air Force, uh, I went to a, a DOD-sponsored short course in um, public relations at Boston University, and that's where I learned about the agency business and um, decided that I'd rather be doing that than um, staying in the Air Force, even though I could have for a 30-year career. And uh, that, that led me to um, uh, Carl Beyer and... Um, uh, uh, you know, just a terrific um, time with that agency working on the West Coast then uh, being invited to lead the international uh, division, which I did, and then based in New York. And um, I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life in the agency field because I enjoyed it so much. Um, in 1986, uh, Footcone and Belding, who owned uh, Carl Beyer at that time, decided to sell our agency to uh, Y&R, and they wanted to merge us with Hill and & Knowlton. And um, on that day, uh, the announcement, um, Larry Foster called our CEO then, Bob Dillenschneider, and said that he had heard about the merger, he liked the idea, and that he had an assignment that he wanted to give to the agency, but he wanted the senior executive to be responsible for it. So uh, Dale Schneider called me at home that night, and he said, hey, we've got this great opportunity. Maybe go to work for Johnson & Johnson. Can you get out there? And I said, oh, Bob, I, I don't know anything about consumer product business or health care. And he said, well, just go out and find out what it is. Let's see what's going on. So I went out a few days later, met Larry, and it turned out that what he had was um, an ingredient that they were developing um, it turned out to be the product Splenda. And um, we did all of the public affairs work getting ready. That was a very, you know, artificial sweetener. is a very controversial category. And um, so all of a sudden I had one of the biggest accounts in the agency. And that's how I got to know um, Johnson & Johnson and Chief Executive Officer Jim Burke at, at the time. And after about a year and a half, um, they started um, talking to me about the possibility of joining the company because Larry was getting ready to retire. And um, I said, I appreciate your interest, but I really like the agency business, and I'm not sure that, you know, that's a move I'd like to make. But they kept asking me, and um, 
Jim Burke, the CEO, called one day and he said, I want you in my office tomorrow. <laughs> so I went out there and he spent a couple of hours talking through the opportunity. He said, I've done a lot of research on you. I understand what you do is really good. Why don't you do it someplace that's important, <laughs> like here in healthcare? <laughs> and then, um, yeah, to be honest, he put an offer on the table and I remember calling my wife and saying, sweetheart, for the sake of our family, I can't not do this. I didn't realize how poor we were. <laughs> so I joined J&J six months later. I wanted to finish a few projects at the agency, and um, I certainly never looked back. Um, it was um, just an extraordinary opportunity. I went to, to work initially for Larry on his executive staff, and then he retired after about a year, and I was uh, promoted into that position and um, reported directly to the new CEO um, who replaced Jim Burke. That was a man named Ralph Larson. And I spent, uh, I reported directly to him, worked with him, for him, for his entire 13-year tenure um, at the, uh, the company. And I have to give a lot of credit. I'm sorry that Ralph passed away a few years ago, but he really understood the importance of the communications function. And in fact, as we were getting ready to launch this, he, he, you know, he asked me what kind of title, and I said, well, Chief Public Relations Officer. And he said, I don't like the term public relations. It's got so many negatives associated with it. And so we agreed to call it corporate communications. And so that was my first title. Um, uh, public Affairs and Corporate Communications at, at Johnson & Johnson. And um, it, um, it it was, I have to say, a blessing uh, to uh, find myself working for uh, the chief executive officer and chairman of the board who so completely understood uh, the role and the value of communications in the success of the corporation, maintaining its value structure and of looking after its reputation. And I had all that responsibility, um, you know, right off the top. And when we started working together, um, late 89, 1990, the healthcare industry was, and particularly pharmaceutical companies, were undergoing a tremendous change because managed care was coming. Johnson & Johnson, up to that point, um, had, uh, was very successful and was able to set its own objectives and meet them without too much competition. But um, competition was growing a lot. And um, Ralph said that, you know, we have to make this organization more competitive, uh, but we have to do it without damaging our values at all. So that was the initial agenda that uh, he put out. And, yeah, well, over the next, you know, several years, we had a number of programs and worldwide conferences with management um, to make sure that everybody understood the imperatives, understood what we were not going to give up, and where we were going to place our priorities, and that we could all speak with one voice, even though the company was, you know, very diversified in healthcare. I considered that opportunity. Um, a great gift. Um, it wasn't something that I expected to go through, but um, I, I, you know, people say you make your own breaks. But 
um, there's also something important about being in the right place at the right time, and I certainly was. Well, that leads me to a follow-up question to what you were just uh, describing, uh, Bill, and that is, you know, um, you you have played a, an important role in the uh, Arthur Page Society, which is, as our listeners I think know, is a, an organization uh, that consists primarily of corporate communications officers of very large corporations, and I guess some nonprofit organizations and and academia and and PR agencies as well. I'm I'm blessed to be a member of the Arthur Page Society myself as a former PR agency uh, owner. Um, but what you bring to the party there, you know, is your very direct and, and vital experience in working with a CEO that you found uh, compatible, somebody who shared the same vision as you did. Um, and I wonder what advice you give when, when you're often called upon by the Page Society and other organizations to reflect on your experiences as a global corporate communications executive working with a CEO. What advice do you give uh, corporate communications officers in the Page Society uh, as to how they can uh, better their relationship with the CEO, work on the same page as the CEO does, and foster a much more meaningful and uh, uh, an ongoing relationship with the CEO that uh, that betters the corporation and, and the standing of corporations throughout the world? Well, the beauty of the Page Society, Arthur Page Society, which is now called Page, is um, the set of principles that were developed um, by several people who knew Arthur Page very well and reflected on what he had done throughout his career. And the Page principles, um, I found, lined up uh, very closely with the credo at the Johnson & Johnson, um, you know, the, the value structure of that organization. And as I think you know, um, in the 90s, um, corporation, big corporations were um, taking a lot of abuse, and because of, you know, of um, corporate downsizing and that, that kind of thing. And in order to try to build back trust and to get credibility, um, we counseled um, many organizations to um, get their values straight, um, and that had to be done at the top level, which is the way the uh, credo was developed at uh, Johnson & Johnson. And when I walked into Page and saw the principles, um, it was almost like seeing some of the same language. And um, so being a part of that organization gave me a great deal to take back into the company uh, to show them how we define ourselves so that the public relations people in the company in many different parts of it uh, we all had kind of a, you know, a, a common language that, that we used that was very consistent with our value structure. And um, I think that, um, you know, if you go back over the last 20, 25 years, um, you see a lot of companies uh, that have done that, done it well. IBM was one of the first. They came out, and John Awara was working there at the time, and they benchmarked uh, with us, uh, so GE, a lot of other uh, big companies, on uh, how to get the, the values clearly stated uh, because it's on the basis of those values that, um, uh, you know, you govern the behavior of the organization. If you make your values publicly stated, then um, 
the, the public will judge your actions on the basis of what they believe you believe is important. And all of that over those couple of decades have led to uh, what we're now seeing as um, companies adopting a real sense of purpose in their organizations uh, beyond just increasing shareholder value. So I found Page to be an ideal organization, and when my boss, the CEO, Ralph, learned about it, you know, he said, you know, give it all the time you need, all the time you want. If you need money for meetings, we're going to fund it, and he did. Um, so that that was that was terrific, but it was done so uh, because he recognized real value in that professional association. Well, it sounds like uh, in your case, the CEO uh, obviously uh, supported everything that you did and, and allowed you to take certain initiatives that you brought to him and felt were appropriate for the corporation given its values. Correct, and. He backed it up. I mean, he funded hundreds of thousands of dollars um, for, you know, um, outside involvements and meetings, um, et cetera, not just to get attention for Johnson & Johnson, but, but because he knew that um, it was increasing my ability to be effective in those professional organizations. Okay. Yeah. So, Bill, going back to uh, your transition from the agency world to J&J, much to your surprise, and I assume you know your uh, great interest in doing so. Why you? Why you and not someone else? What what skills and capabilities do you feel that you brought to J and J originally as an agency executive that caused them to say to themselves, "This could be our guy." Well, it's really hard to uh, to pin down because um, you know. Part of it is just chemistry. How do you get along with the people who are there? And I found groups of people in management and Larry's group and all that um, um, very good to work with. And um, I had had by then um, experience across a lot of different industries, counseling uh, their communications groups and um, you know working on their their problems and. The, as I said, the healthcare industry and the pharmaceutical industry at that time really needed to work. Um, in fact, very early on, within the first year of my position there, I was asked to lead a, a, a company-wide task force to improve uh, the image of pharma, um, the industry's major trade organization. And I led that committee for a number of years, and we got up to spending, you know, millions of dollars every year on television um, messages to um, explain to the American people, and particularly seniors, what the role of the industry was in improving health. And um, it, it just, um, again, you know, being there at the right place at the right time. And having had the experience that I had and interacting with as many people as I could, uh, those kinds of activities tend to open doors for you, and that's how it happens. So, Bill, um, give us a brief uh, description, would you mind, of your time at J&J. &J. You know, you, you were involved, obviously, in a lot of uh, not only uh, – uh, public relations activities aimed at the general 
consumer, but also obviously a lot of other constituencies. What major communications were under your leadership and which major crises, uh, if any, were you on the firing line of? I'm, I'm aware that you, uh, as you had indicated to me, that you, uh, you uh, came to the company after the Tylenol uh, dilemma. Um, but surely, as a pharmaceutical company, you've probably had your share of uh, other crises as well. Can you just describe briefly kind of what your job uh, included and consisted of? Well, uh, my job was um, obviously to be the chief counsel to the CEO and management group um, and to the board when asked um, primarily around the um, standing of the company and its uh, public reputation um, and I had a staff of um, about 25, um, and J&J um, had three major business activities, pharmaceuticals, medical devices, and consumer products. And so I organized that group so that we were a partnership. Um, and um, I put a senior executive uh, from my staff in charge of each one of those. And... Um, we backed each other up all the time so that we were constantly aware of uh, what was going on. The other thing I did was um, it was very important in an organization that was as diversified and spread out um, to be speaking with one voice. And to do that, you have to know what's going on in, um, in every aspect of the business. So I organized a public affairs council. Um, we met, um, once a month uh, in the boardroom, and I asked uh, leaders from uh, every element of the business uh, that had a public audience uh, to be present. So there were about 40 of us who would get together, and um, I would start off with my uh, media relations guy, a fellow named Jeff Levaugh, who would brief them on what he was hearing from the media, what the questions were, what the issues were, and then we invited people to go around the table and talk about what their issues were so that um, everyone was really well-informed. Well informed. It was a great focus group. Uh, somebody would bring in an idea, they want to test it, um, and they could get reaction. So we had human resources people. We had people from the law department, uh, certainly um, government affairs, government relations, the advertising group, marketing groups, um, uh, all, all of these different disciplines um, within the management of the company were part of this public affairs group. And uh, it was so effective that I recommended um, to several of my friends in other companies that they do something similar because it, it, really, it really helped us um, align around the same values and to speak with, with uh, one voice. Um, I think that was the, one, of, one of the biggest positive contributions that I made. Uh, Larry Foster, you know, created the, the function, um, had done a great deal, um, but um, you know his uh, his operation, which was mainly headquarters based, we needed to reach out and uh, be a part more of our operating entities. There were over 200 uh, operating entities at the time uh, in, in the company. So that was a technique that, that, that we used. And um, 
much of that is still going on today, although everything changes, you know, over time. Well, you, you just described, I guess, what you believe is what you what we know to be a, a major contribution that you made to J&J. Um, could you describe what, what else you believe you've contributed to the practice of corporate communications, uh, both during your tenure at J&J and subsequently, obviously, your work with PAGE and other organizations? Well, I have been um, invited you know, to address um, most of the organizations uh, that are part of our profession, and that gave me an opportunity to speak, um, you know, not only philosophically but practically about the function. And um, I, um, I do all of that from a fundamental belief that public relations, this kind of communication that we're involved in, is a calling um, and it is central to the success of any well and essential to the success of any well-managed company. And I have um, repeated that over and over again, um, not just because I believe it, but I wanted to give um, my uh, fellow professional colleagues, you know, the courage to take similar stands in their business organizations, and they certainly did, and certainly have. I don't take all the credit for that, but that, that was the period of time um, in which uh, we, were, we were operating. And today, holy cow, um, this function has never been more important than it is today. Um, coming out of the pandemic and all that has happened to the economy and, and, you know, everything being upside down. Um, business, fortunately, um, and this was verified by the Edelman Trust Barometer, um, enjoys a high level of trust. And I think that CEOs um, taking positions in public policy issues is exactly the right thing to be doing um, because when you look across our society, there isn't any uh, better organized or well-managed function in society than the business community. Major corporations are so well-run, and employees uh, have a high level of trust in their business um, organizations. This is a, a great opportunity for, for business, I, I think, today to help um, uh, build us back as a very successful economy, to help our society, and... Um, Communications is right at the center of all of that, and people who have the communications job need to understand how terribly important their role is, uh, the responsibilities that they have for integrity in public communication, everything based on the truth, and um, I mean that, that's, that's where the function is. And, and um, I think that I'm, I'm talking to younger people who are considering this as a career or starting on the line, you know, um, I have experienced firsthand, if you want to make a difference in your life of work, I can't really think of a, of a function that um, gives more opportunity than the public relations officer or PR in an organization. Um, I really believe that. And um, I have, um, 
have been very fortunate, you know, to have been given the opportunity to make things happen um, like that. Um, one of the things that uh, when I took over my role in the early 90s, uh, we really wanted to make – we knew that, as I told you, uh, we needed to become more competitive, but we needed to make sure that the values were firmly in place all over the world. And so we spent a great deal of time with employees um, educating them um, on our credo values, and um, they, you know, were on the wall in virtually every organization around the world, translated into so many different languages. But it, it gave us a common language um, all over the world, and explaining that benefit to other companies and professionals through the Page Society um, has been a great pleasure. It's it's a, it's. It's the way I think we've contributed. So, what are some of the elements of the of the credo that uh, for PR that you that you wrote? Just a, just a, a sampling. What what kind of well, things does it focus on? I, I, I call it the values and responsibilities of the practice of public relations, and um, I point out that as public relations practitioners, we place the highest value on the relationships we build and maintain, and um, the communications that we initiate with our publics, our constituents, and audiences, and the general public. And you know, I said everything we do and say, speak and write, promote and publicize in whatever form has to be truthful, substantiated, and unimpeachable, always reflecting what we know and believe to be true based upon our own investigation of the facts. And we must assure that whatever form of expression we use is honest, clear, candid in order to be uh, transparent and fully and completely understood. That's our first responsibility to our uh, publics. The, the, the second responsibility is to the organizations and the individuals that we represent. And um, I've explained that we have to provide informed counsel on policy formation and decision-making we must vigorously and honestly advocate the positions, points of view, and the objectives um, our clients pursue while maintaining our objectivity and the highest personal integrity at all times. We're also responsible for advocating behavior that is consistent with the highest standards and values of those that we represent. That's the second tenet. So the first is the public, the second is people we represent. The third tenet is that we believe freedom of expression, and especially uh, freedom of the press, is fundamental uh, to all societies. We have a responsibility to those individuals and organizations that exercise the right to inquire and to report about matters deemed to be of interest to the public. And we must be responsive and timely to legitimate inquiries about the individuals and organizations we represent. We believe our responsibility to the media includes being respectful of the highest journalistic standards. So that's the third tenet. And then the fourth is we're responsible to our profession. Uh, we have to honor and be held accountable for the principles and the ethical standards that underlie what we do and the manner in which we practice. Uh, we have a responsibility to maintain the highest standards of personal character and integrity these are the standards that we expect um, of uh, one another. And finally, we believe that as we meet our responsibilities to our public's clients and the media, 
that understanding and respect for our role will be enhanced and our profession will continue to thrive. We believe that owning and upholding these values and responsibilities will enable us to secure and sustain the trust of all those we seek to serve. So that's four tenets. And I think um, this also helps to kind of define what, what the function is uh, by expressing the responsibilities that we ex accept for who we are. Um, and this was um, inspired uh, by the Johnson Johnson Credo, which is also a statement of responsibilities first authored by General Johnson back in the 40s, uh, coming out of the, the, the 30s when business was in such trouble. He, he said, uh, in order to be successful in the future, uh, we have to ex accept responsibilities for who we are and to lay out our values. And so the first responsibility is to the, the patients and customers that they serve. The second is to the employees. Uh, the third is to the communities in which they operate. And the last is to the owners or shareholders um, of the corporation. Um, and that's said in a lot more words, but, but um, I got to thinking about that and thinking about our profession, and I thought, you know, our profession, our practice could use uh, a similar um, statement of values. So that's how it came about. Well, all I can say is, listeners, I hope you're paying close attention to what Bill Nielsen is saying because uh, this reflects his wisdom and his uh, contributions to the wonderful profession of public relations. So pay close attention and, and heed all of the uh, credos that he is listening for you. Uh, and you'll have an opportunity to, to get this again uh, at any time you'd like, listeners. Uh, Bill, how would you describe the, uh, the manner in which your philosophy of corporate uh, communications has changed over the years, uh, both from your agency days until your uh, retirement from J&J uh, &J and also up through the present? Well, I, I really don't think it's it's um, it's it's changed that much. Although the practice has changed a lot, um, I started with Carl Beyer um, in um, 1970 when I um, left the Air Force, and um, that agency, you know, we had uh, 50 clients, I think, and we charged a, a very big upfront fee. And um, its main function was publicity. And um, I think uh, during the 70s and the 80s, the agency won more silver anvils than any other agency because uh, we were so successful at generating attention. But um, business, you know, became much more competitive um, in the 70s, the 80s, and into the 90s. And um, a lot more people were becoming invested in uh, companies, and so the role of the agencies uh, has had to grow very substantially, not just uh, uh, you know generating public publicity or attention, but counseling um, business organizations on policy development and what they ought to be communicating and uh, maybe what they shouldn't be communicating. So. Um, the makeup of agencies today 
is very, very different than it was in the early 70s. And, of course, with the advent of the Internet and uh, social media, the rise of social media, um, so many more skills have been, skill sets have been so, become so important in agencies because um, individual companies just couldn't afford to, you know, have all of that uh, on their on their books. Um, social media, I think, has changed a lot. Uh, some would argue, and I would be among them, that it's not all good. Um, <laughs> harming everybody with the ability to publish um, has created a real problem with fake news, and um, it's going to take quite some time to get that that uh, turned around. But um, the, the function itself um, uh, has has become increasingly important uh, within major business organizations. Um, and I really believe that is going to continue. It certainly is the view of the Arthur Page or Page Society with all of the programming that they're putting together, uh, looking toward the future and how we're going to get through the current situation, but also take advantage of the opportunities going forward. And uh, the, the communications function, as I said, is right at the center of all of that. So I'm, I'm aware of how important uh, diversity is within J&J, and I know that you place my good friend, Anthony Carter, to head up uh, J&J Worldwide Diversity some years back. What's, what's your view about where diversity is headed in this country? Well, I think, I think we're headed in the right direction, although, um, you know, the, the issue of racism uh, in this country is, is very significant, um, obviously brought to a head by the, uh, the killing of George Floyd. Um, Although it was a terrible thing for him, it was probably a useful event uh, for our society to really get people to think about how deeply embedded uh, racism is in this country. And um, so, so, so that's that's there. But in um, the business world, um, obviously, uh, we need to make sure that we're providing. Um, all the opportunities that we can for people of all ethnic backgrounds uh, to become successful in um, in our society and in our system. Um, I think uh, Johnson Johnson is doing a very good job in, in that regard. And we got him. <laughs> he came in and was very, very effective. He, he worked initially in uh, the corporate communications group and then uh, moved into um, the diversity business um, full time. Very, very effective. Um, are we, have we reached the point that we need to? I don't think so. We still have a great deal of work um, ahead of us. But I think um, the good thing is that most organizations now view this as a very important priority in their plans for the future and um, in their um, view of human resources going forward. Mm -hmm. 
I think we've made a lot of progress. We still have a long way to go. Well, I've got I've got two more questions for you, and okay. I, I thank you I thank you for your time and and the contributions to PR Masters today. The first the first of my final two questions has to do with the pharmaceutical industry itself. You know, you come from an industry that continually takes heat for a variety of alleged policies, high prices, too much profits, failure of proper results from prescription drugs, monopolies. It just seems that the pharmaceutical industry is often beleaguered and attacked for what it does and what it doesn't do. Uh, how did this dilemma shape your corporate communications policies and, that, that you, and, and those of the pharmaceutical industry itself? Well, um, as I said um, early on in my tenure at J&J, I led an industry effort um, to uh, better acquaint the American people <clears throat> pardon me, with um, the role of the pharmaceutical industry. And um, it's, you know, obviously a very competitive industry. And um, for antitrust reasons, you can't always get together and, you know, talk about um, – a lot of issues, particularly pricing and 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 the like, but um, we made sure through pharma and uh, our individual organizations that everybody was aware of the criticisms and the concerns of the industry, so that uh, the companies could and should begin to act on their own to um, uh, correct those situations. And I. I'm very proud of um, what Johnson & Johnson has done. They've had a, a pricing policy uh, in public for quite some time. There are no uh, secrets about how drug pricing is uh, constructed. Um, and probability comes uh, from successful products in any field, including drugs. I mean, the more successful your product is, the more you're going to sell and the more you're going to make. And, um, you know, prior to COVID-19, um, life expectancy was increasing in this country, and many, many people point to the fact that we now have a way to control much of um, the um, attributes that lead toward heart disease. Um, there are many, many survivors of cancer, uh, you know, than we ever had before. And it's the work of the healthcare industry, um, the pharmaceuticals, medical devices, um, healthcare systems, that I think deserve much of the credit um, for that. So it's um, it's a very successful uh, industry, but issues do pop up from from time to time. And um, I remember um, you t you asked about crisis events. Um, we had a Black Friday on my watch um, on Thursday uh, of this particular week. It was in the summer. The New York Times called and said that um, they were going to write a story the next morning that we had fired a man at our Puerto Rico operation because he knew of a side effect of our most important uh, drug at, at the time and um, that he wanted... Uh, comments on it, and we only had 30 minutes to get back to him. And um, I rang the bell, and I had the lawyers and the 
operational people, about 35 of us on the phone. We could not, we didn't have enough information about the situation. So um, we had to call a reporter back and say, oh, we're not prepared to comment um, on, on this issue. And um, they ran the story anyway. And we lost 17% of our value that day. Uh, they actually stopped trading in Johnson & Johnson a couple of times during the day because of that story. Um, and for our part, um, you know, as soon as the phone call was over, we had people on airplanes down to Puerto Rico to get all the facts and all together. And in the next 24 hours, I put together a letter uh, that the chairman and CEO sent to all employees to explain the situation and what we knew about it and what was happening. And then we called the reporter and told him that we were not going to issue a press release, but if he would like to see how we were explaining this to our employees, we'd send him a copy, which we did. And that worked into follow-up stories. And we got all that value back in about two weeks' um, time. Uh, so. And during the initial phases, the lawyers are saying, oh, you got to deny it. Yeah, yeah, you can't get it denied. You can't. But I said, I, you know, I don't have enough information verified to be able to make statements, and I don't want to have to retract anything that we say today. So um, it was the only time in my career where I've ever authorized a no comment. <laughs> but it turned out to be the right thing to do. Well, I guess you see you see the re, the, the – uh... Uh, pragmatic reasons why sometimes uh, a no comment is either appropriate or inappropriate, depending Absolutely. on the circumstances. <laughs> yeah. So I got one final question for you, Bill. Then I'm going to let you go. Um, how does Bill Nielsen? How does Bill Nielsen want to be remembered? Well, I don't really have any personal feelings about that. I. I certainly um, want to be remembered for my family. I have three wonderful daughters, and um, um, I think um, I think the emphasis that I've, I've put on our profession as being a calling is something that uh, I'd like to be remembered for. Um, I, I I really do think um, that. Um, this, this this is a calling for the right people, and in the times that I've been out to universities and colleges all across the country talking to younger people, I, 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 I try to work with them, particularly the freshmen, to make sure that um, they are choosing the right uh, career field. And there's several practical things about that. I said, you know, if you're okay with having six great things in the air um, all the time, um, you know, without losing it, that's fine. If, if you can go through the day uh, and not accomplish one thing, but things are, you know, that that's fine. Um, and I explained to them that the way I handled that uh, dilemma in my career was the one thing I accomplished every day was to wash the dishes after dinner when I got home. <laughs> and um, I... Um, I, th I think that, you know, in, in this field, uh, we have to be comfortable with um, a lot of different things going on all the time, you know, to study quickly, to understand what we don't know, to go find the truth and the facts. And, and um, 
is a very different kind of a profession than, say, an airline pilot. Um, we want airline pilots to operate those big machines exactly the same way every day, you know, with the controls and, and to be safe. So as I said to them, uh, I'd rather not have a PR person up in the cockpit. <laughs> I'll leave it to pilots because that's the kind of job that they like. Day after day, the same thing, day after day. But public relations is very different. And you have demonstrated that, Bill. And you are, you know, you are truly a legend in our wonderful industry. And I, I certainly agree with you about the fact that it's a calling. I feel the same way. And I have always looked to people like you, leaders, who have given me the inspiration and knowledge and wisdom, you know, to uh, continue the credos that you have created. So thank you, Bill Nielsen, for being our very special guest today on our 50th anniversary. And hope to see you soon again, my friend. Okay, Art, thank you very much. I really appreciate the invitation and the time. Thank you, Bill. And okay. thank you all for tuning in to another of the Stevens Group PR Masters podcast series. Until next time, I'm Art Stevens wishing you all the very best.